Hello, and welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Carla McLafferty, author of the book, Buried Lives, the Enslaved People of George Washington's Mount Vernon. As a friendly reminder, there are still seats available for our upcoming Ford Evening Book Talk featuring Tom Clavin, who will discuss his latest release titled Valley Forge on May 7th. More information about the program can be found on the episode page for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org slash podcast. As always, please be sure to rate and subscribe to this series so that you do not miss an episode. And now we join Dr. Butterfield and Carla McClafferty in the studio. You've recently published a book called Buried Lives. Uh, I wonder if you could tell me about that title, Buried Lives. What, is, what does that tell us? Buried Lives is kind of a, a title that sort of applies to two different things. It's really the idea that the enslaved people of Mount Vernon had had uh, buried lives physically in the cemetery, but also so much of what their lives were like is buried in mm-hmm. history. So it's sort of like a, a twofold idea there. Um, and really what I hope to do is in this book is really bring them to life in both of those ways, really. Wow. So uh, I know in the book you, you explore the lives of, of, of six individuals in great detail. Uh, but before we get to, to those stories, I wonder if you could tell us just in broad strokes about the relationship between George Washington and the institution of slavery. Uh, was it something he was born into? Uh, t- tell us about the, the larger picture of George Washington's connection to the institution. Well, uh, Washington was born into the world of slavery, uh, and so when he was young, he was around slavery and and the issues of slavery for his entire life. He inherited, um, uh, when he was 10 years old, he inherited 11 enslaved people that Mm. went to him, and so he would be a slave owner for his entire life. And so that is just the the reality of history. And so um, this is really a book that I've tried to highlight six specific enslaved people to what what my hope is, is to bring them out of the fog of history and into the spotlight today. So um, that's that's sort of like the idea for this book Mm -hmm. is is can we can we talk about specific people? And so that's what I've tried to do here. Yeah. Okay. So, and when you uh, when you dive into these stories, uh, just in, without talking about specifics quite yet, I, I wonder if you could just talk talk to us about the 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 record. What kind of materials are you able to draw from to learn about the enslaved people here at Mount Vernon? All of my books are based on primary source documentation. So uh, that was one of the questions that I had for myself when I first started thinking about the possibility of a book like this. Is is there enough primary source documents to support a book on specific people. Mm-hmm. And so the um, there is a great wealth of primary source documentation in letters, in journals, in farm reports, in um, tax records. There's lots and lots of information about specific enslaved people from a lot of different areas and a lot of different types of primary sources. Sadly, there's not any from them, the people themselves. And so it was honestly a challenge to think about how am I going to bring these people to life with no words of their own. But it, it, uh, it took a lot of really um, 
serious thought and consideration about how to take what is the historic record and build their lives around that. But there's lots and lots of information, just not from their own pen. Mm, okay, so let's let's now get into some of these stories. Um, I know that one of the people that you spend a great deal of time exploring, and he's someone that I think a lot of people that know about George Washington feels if they're beginning to understand, and that's William Lee. Uh, who was he? Uh, in, in, in general terms, who was William Lee? And then, and then we can talk about what you've discovered about him. William Lee was um, the valet for George Washington, basically uh, for many, many years. All of the uh, entirety entirety of the Revolutionary War. William Lee was side-by-side with George Washington every minute. What does a valet do? Uh, A valet uh, uh, gets your clothes, that keeps them clean, sets them out. He would have helped him dress in the morning. He would have uh, finished off his hair after after Washington, you know, uh, got up in the morning. So it's very much um, what would probably be called a manservant. Hmm. And so, um, but during the war, one of the great uh, jobs that William Lee had was to keep Washington's papers safe. So one of the things in the collection here at Mount Vernon is is the actual safe that William Lee packed and unpacked and moved and moved throughout that war. So uh, the idea that not only uh, is the is the documentary record. Of, of what he did there, then these artifacts also survive. Hmm. And so that's what he did. He really was uh, just at, at Washington's beck and call, you would say, to do whatever was needed. So um, William Lee is a very um, um, interesting person in the life of Washington because he ends up being the only enslaved person that Washington frees at his death. Did William Lee see battle? Was he with Washington in battle? I have not found any evidence that spoke about him being in battle, so I really am not real clear about that. But there, there is um, a document that was written by George Washington Park Custis that recalls, it must have been a story that he recalled hearing about William Lee um, being uh, leading a group of other um, enslaved people and and sort of doing a recon mission over mm. the enemy. Um, and I actually have that in the book, that, that quote in the book. But I've never been able to, to pinpoint a document that said he was in battle. Mm. Um, did you learn anything about William Lee that really surprised you that you didn't know coming in? I think one of the things that that surprised me uh, about William Lee is that his his lengthy uh, stay and life at Mount Vernon, even after George Washington dies, um, you know, Washington frees him and then gives him an annuity, and basically says in his will, if he if he wants to leave, he's free to leave because he has his freedom. But if he chooses to stay, that he he could stay, and William Lee does indeed stay. Um, the evidence is that he has a drinking problem hmm. later in his life. Um, and what I found absolutely fascinating is even after Washington's death, when um, old soldiers came to Mount Vernon still to see Mount Vernon, even though Washington was no longer living, they would um, they would go and see Billy Lee, William Lee. Wow. And uh, he would talk to them about the old days. Wow. 
Um, in this, in the book, you you also describe a, a story that I think uh, some people may, uh, are are beginning to know from some some recent exciting biographies about her. Ona Judge or Oni Judge, uh, who was she? Oni Judge was uh, a young girl, African American girl, enslaved girl, who um, went into the mansion to work uh, inside the mansion when she's about ten years old. Ultimately, she becomes what we would call the lady's maid to, to Martha Washington. So, um, you know, at, at a very young age, it is likely she probably helped with uh, take care of Martha's grandchildren. And so um, she is really well known as one of those enslaved people who went to Philadelphia mm-hmm. with the Washingtons during the presidential years. And um, she was... And, and, and what I talk about in the book is that Oni was well-dressed at that point in time because Oni would have gone along with Nellie Custis and Martha Washington as they made their social rounds. She would have been the lady's maid. She would have been more or less sitting in a corner waiting for any kind of indication that she was needed. But So she was dressed very well. They bought her lots of dresses, and yet she still did not have her freedom. Mm-hmm. And that one of the things that fascinates me about the presidential years in Philadelphia is that um, th- that the presidential household has freed black people working there who were getting paid and and the enslaved people that were uh, that came from Mount Vernon are there as enslaved people mm-hmm. and there's so there's paid white people there's paid uh, African American people and then there's enslaved African American mm-hmm. people all in the president's house in Philadelphia yeah. so um, ultimately uh, Oni Judge is, is famous if you want to say famous mm-hmm. for uh, successfully running away from the house in Philadelphia where did she go? she went to New Hampshire to um, um, she Really, uh, the interesting story to me, uh, part of the story, is that she um, she slips away as they're beginning to have dinner and, and ultimately gets on a ship uh, to New Hampshire and makes her way there and ultimately has a life of freedom, yet she's never technically free. Mm-hmm. And um, so she has kind of a, a, a very interesting rest of her life yeah and and in in the uh in the book you you describe this this sort of um complicated world in philadelphia uh, that that there's even some opportunities for the enslaved people that are coming from mount vernon to find their freedom if they stay there for a certain length of time i wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that uh, and the ways in which the uh, the washington family uh, dealt with that it's one of those uh those periods of time where where you can look back in history and and realize that every state had their own laws. And so um, in in Pennsylvania, there was a, a law that said if an enslaved person stayed and lived in in Pennsylvania for six months without ever leaving, they could they could um, get their freedom. Mm-hmm. So um Washington, at President Washington is actually away on on um, the Southern tour, basically, and um, someone comes to their home to see Martha and says, 
one of my enslaved people has has uh, petitioned for their freedom, and you need to consider this in your own family. Mm-hmm. So um, it's one of those periods of time where um, history is messy, and this is one of those times when history is really messy, and it's one of those uh, points in George Washington's life where where he doesn't do what you hope he would have done. Mm-hmm. And so when they realized that several of their enslaved people, including Oni Judge and Christopher Shields, who I also talk about in the book, and Hercules as well, they realized that it's been almost six months that they've lived there. So um, George Washington writes Tobias Lear to say, um, with with an all with the knowledge of Martha Washington all that they needed to plan a trip outside of Pennsylvania so that that time begins to click all over again mm-hmm. so if an, if if they took their enslaved uh, people outside of Pennsylvania and then brought them back even the next day that 6 months period begins all over again and so that's what they do wow it's a, um, and you're right, it's a, it's a complicated uh, story of, of gradual abolition in Pennsylvania as they're starting to move in that direction. But this is one of those uh, instances where um, uh, we, looking from the present, uh, have every, uh, every right to feel discomfort and, and frustration with that missed opportunity. But uh, you mentioned Hercules. I want to dive into this story. Uh, and, um, well, let's just start at the beginning. Who's Hercules? Hercules is a great uh, um a man to to talk about uh, in a book for young readers because he's he's just a very interesting character. They all are in various ways, but Hercules is as well. Hercules was um, a, a young boy who belonged to one of George Washington's neighbors, uh, whose name was Posey, and Hercules worked running the ferry. And so when Washington bought Ferry Farm from uh, and he at Mr. Posey owed George Washington money, mm-hmm. and as partial payment, Washington took possession of of some people, uh, enslaved people, and Hercules was one of those people. And so um, Hercules comes when he's very young to live at Mount Vernon, and he's ultimately um, going to learn how to cook. And so he and Nathan, I believe, were taught how to cook from a doll who was still cooking at that point in time. And so um, years later, during the presidential years in Philadelphia, George Washington uh, was looking for a cook, and he decided to take Hercules with him. So Hercules was the chief cook in the president's house in Philadelphia. Wow. And so he had uh, control of a very large kitchen and a large staff. And that's that was one of the fun parts to write about in this book, is to really try to set the scene of what a kitchen in the 18th century would have, would have been like for all of these many, many dishes to be uh, being cooked on, on a hearth mm-hmm. at the time. And, and and to really try to to just place Hercules in the middle of that kitchen and see him at the top of his game. Mm-hmm. And so um, I really I really enjoy the idea of, of of bringing Hercules to life in the minds of young uh, readers to to see him um, 
who is really got a lot of of influence in in uh, Philadelphia, which is where they were living. And then the other thing that's uh, that is a great part of Hercules' story is that when his job was done on the days of the state dinners, he worked all day cooking this massive meal, and that once the steward took control of the dinner, Hercules went to his quarters, changed into his good clothes. Hercules was allowed to sell the slops of the kitchen, and what slops means is like tea leaves that had been used once, that they dried out and sold, Mm. Um, fat renderings that they would sell, and he got to keep the money. Wow. Hercules was known to buy really nice clothes with his money. Hmm. And so when he changed uh, on those nights and he walked down the street, uh, the people of Philadelphia saw a very polished gentleman and treated him exactly like that wow. as a polished gentleman. And then uh, and then sort of the sad um, um, other side of the story of Hercules is that uh, at some point he is sent back to Mount Vernon and once he gets here, the Washington family has not come back home yet, and he is sent back out to dig clay and make bricks. Hmm. So he's gone from from the highest place, and you know, as an enslaved chief cook, and now he's digging clay and making bricks. And it's Hercules that successfully runs away not very long before the Washington family returns from the presidential wow. presidential years. Wow. So um, it's just it's a really great story, I think, of history to um, then write about in such a way that a, a contemporary reader can can feel those highs and lows. Yeah, I wonder if you could. Uh, you you mentioned the the hustle and bustle of the kitchen back in the day. What's something that that you you learned about the a life in a kitchen in that time that, that you can tell us about? I learned a, a lot about hearth cooking. Uh, now, I don't want to do it now much. Okay. <laughs> but um, I learned really about they, they knew what kind of wood to use. Uh, they 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 knew what the temperature had to be to cook certain things. So there would be there would be different parts of the hearth, and some parts would be uh, roasting meat. And then they they used a lot of Dutch ovens, and they would use the coals. Mm. So um, I learned a lot about how that would work and how they would pile coals on the top of a Dutch oven to cook it more or less like an oven. So it was a tremendous amount of work. Yeah. Um, I often think when I go into the kitchen here at Mount Vernon, um, how pleasant it would be on a cold day to yeah. go in that kitchen and and see that roaring fire and, and Doll or Hercules or Nathan cooking on that hearth. But on the other hand, I also think about how excruciatingly hot it would be in the middle of August here yeah. with that hearth roaring. Wow. So it's it's the two sides of what it would be like to be a cook in the 18th century. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, George Washington's will, and I wonder if we could spend a little bit of time uh, on that. Uh, at the what What's the... The outcome of slavery here at Mount Vernon, uh, in uh, as we come up to the end of George Washington's life, and then at the end of Martha Washington's life, uh, tell us about these sort of closing years of the Washingtons and and George Washington's will. It's a very complex story, and I and I try to explain it in the book as in the simplest terms that I can. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there were 317 enslaved people working at Mount Vernon in 1799, the year that George Washington dies. 123 of them were owned completely by George Washington. 153 of them were um, were part of Martha's dower estate, and 41 people were, were rented from someone else. Mm-hmm. So what what that meant is that when when Washington decides that he's going to free the people that he owns, Martha Washington's uh, 153 people cannot be freed because they are part of her dower estate. Dower means widow. So um, as part of her first husband, Daniel Park Custis's estate, when he died young, without a will, one-third of his estate was considered Martha's dower estate. She could not sell it. She couldn't do anything with it but preserve it to be handed down to their to their uh, children or their children's children when when she passed away. Mm-hmm. So what I've come to call it, in my own mind at least, the Great Divide. So when George Washington writes his will, he says, all of my uh, enslaved people are, I'm going to free after Martha dies. So he dies first, and according to the terms of his will, um, they're going to be freed after Martha dies. Mm-hmm. But... About a year later, Martha decides it's best for her to go ahead and and free the people that were in George Washington's will. And so what is going to happen is 123 people are going to be freed and 153 that are part of her, her dower estate cannot be freed. So people that had intermarried between those two different groups of people are now going to be separated, which is something that Washington never wanted to do. He never wanted to separate enslaved families. So what happens? So what has to happen, according to Virginia law, is that the the 153 people of the Dower estate have to be um, inherited by the four living grandchildren of Martha and her first husband. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. So George Washington's are freed. The Dower Estate uh, people are disseminated between those four living grandchildren. And so it's a very it's a very difficult period of time because some sometimes the daddy was freed and mama and the children were not freed. Sometimes mama and the children were freed and daddy was not free. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, another part of the story uh, that you describe in the book, and you hinted at this at the beginning, is is the actual final resting place of a lot of these people. Uh, what did you learn about the the burial ground here at Mount Vernon? The um, cemetery where the enslaved are buried at Mount Vernon um, today has a beautiful monument there, and uh, but for many, many, many years it was unmarked at in any way. Mm-hmm. So. Um, what Mount Vernon decided to do a few years ago was to begin an archaeological dig to determine how many graves are there, where they are, which direction they're they're kind of lying mm-hmm. in their graves, and and the boundaries of the cemetery. They they're never going to disturb the remains of anyone that's that's buried there. Mm. But the hope is that from the archaeological team is that they're going to kind of determine how many graves are there, and uh, so that's sort of part of the book 
that I've written, Buried Lives, is is this idea that even though most of the people that I write about in the book are actually not buried there, um, my hope is that, that the book brings it back full circle to the idea that for generations uh, there many enslaved people were buried there. There's no records of their deaths. Nobody will ever know who's in those graves. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know the idea that that for this book, I put the lives of these six people first, thinking that the, the the people who a reader comes to know is going to care more deeply about this this um, archaeological dig in the cemetery. and and so they're they're both going to to kind of influence the other. Mm-hmm. The idea of these unmarked graves then is going to make the the stories of what is known about a lot of these enslaved people and give that uh, even more uh, more power to to talk about. So um, the work continues in the uh, in the cemetery, mm-hmm. and I actually had the great privilege of going and uh, participating in the dig a couple mm-hmm. of days. And it was a great, great blessing to me because after having written about the lives of these six people and uh, writing about the archaeological dig in general, I saved some space for me to come and then write about it. And so on the days that I was here, uh, I helped them uncover grave number 67. Wow. And do you, can you tell us anything about grave 67? Um. It's just, uh, it's another grave, just like all the rest of them are. Um, no one will ever know who. Wow. But that day, um, I had to wonder whose grave it was. Was this the grave of William Lee? Mm-hmm. Um, he's probably, of the six people I highlight in this book, William Lee is, I, I think, without a doubt, buried there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea, but I like to think that maybe in that grave was somebody that I'd written about. You know, or their family, uh, their brother, their sister, you know, their mother, aunts, uncles. So um, it was a great uh, moment for me uh, to kind of come full circle to to kind of uh, experience um, this this great pleasure of participating in in a dig that, uh, to Mount Vernon's credit, is con- going to continue. This has been a wonderful opportunity to learn. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.